Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Uh, I was invited to a Super Bowl party, and they were going to serve seafood gumbo. How to ruin a Super Bowl party. <laughs> How to ruin any party, come to think of it, you know? It's KFC and a diet mango Coke, okay? Uh, but, uh, and are we 49er lovers or are we 49er loathers? Where are we at, guys? Uh, <laughs> there's one, okay? There's one. Go Chiefs, okay? So, uh, uh, and this is, also, this is also not just Super Bowl Sunday, this is also Groundhog Day. And this morning, if John had woken up and had seen his shadow, then we would have sung six more songs, but obviously, uh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So, uh, welcome. Uh, We're going to start a little bit different than we would usually. We're going to start by taking a family time out. Uh, This is actually my one-year anniversary of being here as your executive pastor. And, uh, yeah, and... uh, uh, but what I want to do is I want to give you a little update on the income situation from 2019. And I'm going to do this quite quickly. Uh, and if you're a guest with us this morning, just so you know, sometimes as a church family, we have to take a family time out and talk a little bit when everybody's together. Uh, but if, you, if, you're, if you're a guest, this church relies on the giving of its members to make this church happen. And all the ministry that this church does doesn't come from outside sources. It comes from just the, 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 the amazing people who are here and own this church and call this church home. So, uh, I got five slides. I'm just going to show you them quickly, and uh, hopefully this will give you a picture of what happened in 2019. So, uh, first slide, uh, our total general offering income of last year was just on the 1.6 million mark, and that's just phenomenal, guys, okay? 1.620401, thank you for the dollar, and it's just that, now that there is actually, if you go to the second slide, that's actually 9.58% lower than the previous year. And don't sigh like that there. I mean, we've got to celebrate 1.6 million, okay? And last year was a hard year. I mean, obviously, something huge hit this church, and uh, several people left, and obviously people were nervous about where's this church going to go and what's going to happen, and we're, we're still in this time of transition. But, uh, oh, that slide went off, but it did lower down to 9.58%. However, our total expenses also dropped as well by, uh, they went down to 1.628231, which is actually, if you go to the next slide, 13% lower than the previous year's expenses. So, uh, thank you to those who lead finance, Christy, and thank you uh, for making sure that we spent wisely and carefully and made sure that we balanced our books. Uh, So, Last slide, budget last year was 1.875, and this year's budget, the board signed off on at 1.795. So, uh, that's where we're at this year in 2020. It's going to be an exciting year. It's going to be the year of the arrival. We trust God for this in the coming of your new senior pastor, and uh, we're excited to see what all God does. And firstly, a huge thank you for all your faithful generosity. Uh, This is one of the strongest marks of this church, Uh, and I've known that in the history of me knowing this church for over 10 years, 14 years, I think. 
you're generous, and you're very giving. And uh, I know that God uh, very much loves a cheerful giver, and you are the cheerful givers. And there's a, there's a sense in which you're no man's debtor, you're never God's debtor. And as you give and give generously, God blesses. And not that our giving causes that blessing, but there's a, there's a response in the heart of God to His people who are generous and kind. And thank you for that. And again, we trust God's faithfulness as we enter 2020. As you can tell, we put that budget, our giving was 1.6, we put the budget to 1.79. And that's just a faith statement. It does include the renewed store and how we manage the renewed store and give that money away. Uh, but uh, we will do our part in being careful in expenditure. Uh, it's very hard not to be when Christy's in charge. She's just a mean girl, you know. <laughs> and my background is in banking, and I'm a Scotsman, and we don't spend well. So, uh, and we know. We know that we work with hard-earned and sacrificially given money. And uh, the board, myself as your executive pastor, the staff, thank you for your trust, for your faithful giving, your generous hearts, and we'll do our part to make sure that we bring that church in and budget and healthy and ready for this next era of ministry. So, family time out, finished. Uh, hope that they'll give you a little insight as to uh, our income and our expenditure, and certainly on behalf of us all, a huge thank you for your faithfulness. So, well, hey, let's come to preaching this morning, and preach number three in the series, Consumed. What's sucking the life out of you? Did anyone feel that January had 74 days in it? Oh, man. It's like the longest month ever, okay? And then after last week's message, anyone else have the busiest week they've ever had? Like, it was a test. And I stand before you, having failed the test again. And I'm not proud of that. But I'm going to try to keep taming that beast of busyness. And uh, this week, we're bowing down to a slightly different idol. Uh, not now bowing down to the idol of busyness. And if you weren't here last Sunday because you were too busy, uh -huh. yeah, go online, svcclamore.org, and listen to it. This week, bowing down to the idol of family. So there's this incredible story in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And I want to head straight to it as we preach. Genesis chapter 21. If you have a Bible, open it up there. If you haven't, listen along as I read it, okay? We're going to read a little bit in Genesis 21, Genesis 22, as we talk a little bit about this idol of bowing down to the idol of family. Uh, Genesis 21 verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah just as He had said He would, and did for Sarah what He had promised. So, Sarah became pregnant and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. Abraham named his son whom Sarah bore him Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him just as God had commanded him to do. Now, uh, back in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision and became a mark of the people of God, Israelites. And uh, <laughs> shouldn't really do a joke in between reading Holy Scripture, but, you know, uh, when, when God gave Abraham the sign of uh, circumcision, Abraham said to God, how come Noah got the rainbow? <laughs> 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 you know, 
Yeah, okay, okay. So, um, so verse 5. Now, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She went on to say, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have given birth to a son for him in his old age? Uh, let's stop there. Uh, it's just a phenomenal story. And you just think, wow, God. Uh, uh, let me share with you my favorite story about a test. Uh, <laughs> a young guy is taking a college class in ornithology the study of birds. And the teacher is famous for giving really hard exams. So, this kid studies like crazy for the finals. And he pulls an all-nighter, and he walks into the final, and there's no usual paper and pencil kind of deal for the test. All there is on the wall are 25 pictures of birds. And the professor explains that the final is you have to identify 25 species of birds from their pictures. But the killer is that the picture doesn't show the whole bird body. It only shows the bird's feet. So you've got to identify 25 kinds of birds just from their feet. Well, this young student goes nuts. It's like, crazy. Nobody in the world can do this. I'm not going to take this final. And the professor says, well, I'm the teacher, and you have to take it. That's the final. And the kid says, well, it's absurd. I'm not going to do it. And the professor says, well, all right then, I'm going to flunk you. And the kid says, well, go ahead and flunk me. I'm not taking it. And the professor says, okay, all right, you're flunked. What's your name? And the kid rolls up his pants to his knees and says, you tell me, Okay, slight turn, okay? <laughs> Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, he wrote a book back in 2003 or so called Choosing to Cheat. And the idea behind the book is that we all have to cheat somewhere in order to make it through life. And the idea, cheating like in this sense, you have to give up certain opportunities in order to take advantage of certain other opportunities. So, like, you can't answer every demand, and you can't satisfy every voice, and you have limits. You are finite. And so, the premise of the book is, somebody in your life is going to feel cheated, because the reality is that you don't have enough time. And that's your problem, my problem. And therefore, in this sense, everybody cheats. The actual title of Andy's book is Choosing to Cheat. Who wins when family and work collide? And this is something of last week's message. We choose to cheat on our kids and our spouse when we decide to give our best hours to our job and not to those who we say we love. But I want to scratch a little more today on 
where that cheating can also lead. The story of Abraham is a fascinating story. Uh, Abraham, like most men in ancient times, he longed for a son so he could have an heir, and that heir would carry his name. And years went on, and decades passed, and Abraham still had no son, and therefore he had no heir. And this desire was slowly becoming the deepest desire of his heart. And this desire was beginning to consume him. Ever been there? Ever been consumed over something that you've not got, but you want? Like, like how many people are consumed over their body image, and they've not got the figure that they'd like, and they are possessed by trying to get it? Work hard to get it? How many people are consumed over their financial position, and you've not got the money that you want, and you will go after every possible route you can to try to get more money? Or how many people consumed over your job that you didn't get that you wanted, or over the house that you haven't yet got that you want? The Apostle Paul writes that one of the worst things that God can do to someone, uh, Romans chapter 1, is that God can give them over to the desires of their hearts. Now, the Bible says that could be one of the worst things that God does for you. The human heart has a tendency to take a desire for something good and make that desire supreme. So, here's Abraham. He so desires a son, an heir, and that's, that's not a bad desire, but that desire becomes the deepest desire of his heart, and he begins to allow that desire to determine his morals. He sleeps with his wife's maidservant to try and get himself a son. And this is back in Genesis chapter 16, and you can read that story where, you know, Abram lies with Hagar, his wife's maidservant, to get a son, and a son is born called Ishmael. And that's a fascinating exploration in history and theology in itself. Abram has two sons, and Ishmael is the father of the East. And it's a very interesting that he's also a son of promise. And there's a second line, and where does that lead theologically? That's a whole other exploring talk sometime. But this desire of him wanting a son and an heir begins to determine the kind of man that he would be, the kind of husband that he would be. This desire begins to define him. And this desire began to also define his relationship with God. Like, think how many nights his closing prayer was about God giving him a son. And think about how many mornings he woke up and he was saying his morning prayers. And again, his focus in all of his praying is, God, give me a son. This was what he thought about. This is what he prayed about. This is what he talked about. This is what he dreamed about. This, this, this desire was beginning to consume him. And as this was all going on, Abraham acted loyal and true to God's call in his life. 
And, and alongside those prayers for a son and an heir, Abraham in the journey was willing to leave his own country and travel to a foreign land that this God had told him to go to. And, uh, and alongside his daily petitions for a son, Abraham had obeyed God and he'd left his friends and he'd left most of his family. He'd given up his prosperity and peace. And he was out in the wilderness, uncertain of where God was actually going to lead him to. And during those years, longing for an heir, Abraham had stopped worshiping the sun God of his ancestors and he'd begun to worship this new God, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And people had laughed at him, and people said he was crazy. But day in, day out, as he prayed to this new God, he prayed, God, give me an heir, give me a son. And amazingly, and amazingly, at the age of 100, and his wife was over the age of 90, Abraham got what he so desired. Isaac was born. And he now had everything he ever wanted. And God did now something remarkable. If you still have your Bible open, now swing over to the next chapter. Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1. Sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as an offering on one of the mountains which I will indicate to you. God asked him to give it up. Now stop there and ask yourself, why? Why? Why would God ask Abraham to now offer up in an offering the thing that he most desired that God gave him? And get ready for the answer. Was God, this new God, this God whom he followed to the ends of the earth and trust, this God whom he prayed to for his son, this deepest desire of his heart, was God just a means to an end? And now, when he had what he wanted, would he still obey? Would he still honor? Would he still follow the God who'd brought him so far and given him everything that he wanted? Had Abraham cheated to get from God what he wanted? Had he played the pious follower? Had he played the loyal worshiper? Had he played the obedient servant? Had he played that role just to get what he wanted? Had he used God for himself? Not that we would ever do that. Like, God, look how I'm obeying you. Now give me my deepest desires. Like, God, look at the tithe check I just dropped in that basket. Now it's your turn to return the favor. 
Now, God, look how much I do around this church and the values that I teach my children. You've got my back, haven't you? And we cheat God and we use God to get what we most desire. We follow and obey, not really for God, but for what we can get. I think to use modern parlance, this is called quid pro quo. <laughs> and in Abram's case, his desire for a son was everything. And when he got that desire met, his son became his everything. And when something becomes your everything, it replaces God. So, let's take a moment to do some philosophical theology. And if you don't like this kind of thing, look at your phone. Okay. How can the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all life, the maker of everyone, the king of kings and the lord of lords, be anything but everything? Like, Sorry, God Almighty, you're below my job in my pecking order. Or sorry, God of all gods, you're below my kids in the pecking order. Or sorry, God of the universe, you're below my success in the pecking order of my priorities. God is everything and can only be everything. Logically, God cannot be less than everything. But that deepest desire that God gives you ends up demoting God and promoting itself in your life. Abraham, you seemed to honor and obey me, and I heard your prayers, and I've given you the desire of your heart, but was I just a means to the end? Go to Moriah and sacrifice Isaac to me. Stay with me this morning, okay? Here's my question. Are you bowing down to the idol of family? The Bible has much to help us with on the topic of raising children. And maybe you're a mother or a father here. Maybe you're an aunt or an uncle here. Maybe you're a grandparent here. So there's probably in your sphere of influence some children that you are partly involved in raising. So listen up. If I was to summarize the biblical teaching on raising children, here's what it would be. Parenting is the process of teaching and training your children to leave. We do parenting well when our children are ready and able to leave and to leave well. It is not a good thing if you are shaving your face and your hair and still in your mom's home. When the Bible begins to unpack for us 
how to get the child ready to leave. And it begins, says the Bible, with the child seeking wisdom. And so there's a whole bunch of passages in what's known as the wisdom scriptures, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, some of the Psalms. And, and let me just read a few of them to you. Like Proverbs 10, verse 1, a wise child brings joy to his father, but a foolish child grief to his mother. And it's repeated twice, Proverbs 10 and then Proverbs 15. And then Proverbs 13, a wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. Or Proverbs 23, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom, discipline, and understanding planted deep in the DNA of the human soul, the soul of every boy and every girl, is the hunger for truth, for wisdom, for what is right. And that hunger for truth and wisdom has been planted there by God. Therefore, when God says, parents, guide your children to that wisdom. Teach it. But you will most teach it more by the choices and the lives that you are living than the lectures you give them. Can your child, can your child look into your home or look into your marriage or look into your habits or look into your priorities or look into your passions or look into your purchases or look into your friendships or look into your language or look into your TV favorites or look into your lifestyle and when they look in can they see wisdom displayed so let me give you some examples of this kind of wisdom you talk to your spouse with anger or with disrespect, you never use her name, you call her her, or you call him it. What's the wisdom being taught? You respect others, but the one you marry, you don't need to respect. Here's a litmus test for a healthy marriage. Do you show more respect to a visitor entering your house than you do to the one you profess to love and honor. Or here's another wisdom. You promise that you'll get to see your kids at their school show or their sports game, but you seldom make it. What's your message? My word is not my bond, so you don't need to make your word your bond either. Or you sit and talk about other people with your children listening to your every moan and every judgment. What's the, what's the wisdom message? It's okay to backstab people. Or you always make their football game or their school concert, but you never come with them really to church very often. What's the wisdom message? God isn't as important as playing football. teach them. So many parents let culture be the teachers of their children. Don't, don't let culture decide what's important for your child. You make the decision as the parent as to what's best for your child. Like culture says, let's compare ourselves with everybody else. 
Uh, so, so they have that there. Well, we need to get that as well. And that's the dominant culture of primetime Disney or Netflix or Nickelodeon. Or culture says, this standard of morality is okay. It's not hurting anyone. Wear what you want, express yourself. Or culture says, push your way to the top. Look after number one. Or culture says, you're entitled to what you want. Oh, this is a huge one. We live, and we know this, we live in such an entitlement mentality culture. But all that's doing is gratifying selfish desire. Avoid it at all costs. Avoid at all costs your child growing up with an entitlement culture. Avoid it. There's only one thing worse, only one thing worse than a spoiled child. And it's a spoiled, selfish adult. It's plain folly for parents to abdicate the teachings of values and lifestyles to culture. The Bible says, Proverbs 12, in the way of righteousness, there is life. Along that path is immortality. That's Holy Scripture. I'm not making it up. Where's that lifestyle taught most? Here. Sunday mornings. Wednesday nights at Tuesday nights at junior high found, found foundations. Summer Bible adventure. It's incredible to me that some parents will choose a sport or a dance class or a friend's house or a sleep-in or take it slow on Sundays over church and your child being trained. Blows my mind. We have 40 middle schoolers on a Tuesday night here, but your sixth grader is making all the decisions. I don't want to go. It's boring. You're letting your sixth grader decide on what's wise and what's not wise. They're sixth graders. Their brain is not there. Well, you would never allow your sixth grader to decide on not going to school. Like, I don't like algebra, mom. I'm not going to go. Well, that's fine, honey. If you don't like it, don't go. But it sounds, it sounds like there are some parents and you're more concerned that your kid is good at algebra or baseball or fishing, but never meets God. Sure, there are some boogers here, <sighs> but it's also where they'll learn wisdom and the path of righteousness. And along that path, there is immortality. Listen to what the Proverbs say, Proverbs 22, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. This is an immensely powerful verse. And I've trusted that verse with our two boys. And they're now in their 20s. And they're strong followers of God. They're not conformists to legalistic Christianity. They're not here out of guilt or fear of hell but they're true men of faith 
who are seeking to live it in a relevant and real way. And I wasn't a perfect parent. If Daniel was here, I was with Daniel a night there in uh, Kunisamas eating some Japanese food in Fresno, and <laughs> we're going back over the blunders of my parenting. And I'm not, I remember driving to Vegas, well, there was a blunder, um, <clears throat> with him, <laughs> and just having, like, he was like, I think he was like 17 or 18, and I was, you know, and I'm saying, Danny, I need to apologize for you. I need to apologize for you for some of the real bad moments of my parenting. And we, we, we named them. Moments where I'm not proud of. And just ask for his forgiveness. I wasn't the best parent. I was, as you knew last week, I was often absent, justifying it with busyness for God. But I do know that they were trained in the way of godliness and it's kept them. Not because of my parenting skills, but because of he's true to his word. You can test him on that. Bowing down to the idol of family. Genesis 22 again. Abraham. Okay. Verse 3. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants with him, along with his son Isaac, and when he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he started out for the place God had spoken to him about. On the third day, <laughs> you would need to understand what, what's significant about the third day, and I'll leave you to think that one through this afternoon, okay? On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place in the distance. He said to his servants, you two stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then return to you. Again, look at the text we will return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. Then he took the fire and the knife in his hand, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, what is it, my son? He replied, here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Oh, come on, read the text, folks. Hear what it's saying. When they came to the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood in it. Next, he tied up his son, Isaac, and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, and prepared to slaughter his son. But the Lord's angel called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, I, he answered. Do not harm the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up and saw behind him a ram caught in the bushes by its horn. So he went over and got the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord provides. It is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord's provision will be made. There's so much in that text. Pointing towards Christ, pointing towards how God will deal with sin and our problem. The belief in the resurrection. Something good becomes something supreme. And that good thing leads us into idolatry. So Abraham wants an heir, a good thing. In his culture of all of Abraham's dreams and hopes, they rested on the firstborn son. But in getting one, Isaac, did Abraham replace God? Now, now, you might want to object about what God asked him to do, like sacrifice your son. I mean, that's cruel and violent, maybe even evil. 
To Abram, however, this wasn't that odd. The life of the firstborn was at other times forfeited due to the sins of the people, and that's a bigger and longer discussion of how we understand those texts today in our culture. But Abram held this amazing tension. God is both holy, just, and full of grace. Abraham could trust that a holy God would not do something cruel or evil, but he also believed that a holy God needs to deal with sin. Tim Keller writes these words, Abraham did not walk up the mountain saying, this is crazy, this is murder, but I'm going to do it anyway. Instead, he was saying, I know God is both holy and gracious. I don't know how He's going to do both, but I know He will. And he and Isaac climb the mountain, and they both see the sacrifice site. And just as Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, the voice of God comes from heaven and says, You didn't cheat on me after all. You didn't just use me as a means to an end. This whole incredible test was about one thing. Has Abraham bowed down to the idol of family? Is he putting his love and his care and his hopes and his dreams, everything, into his son Isaac? Or is he still believing that God is his everything? Here's the wisest point I've ever read on this story. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. Hold that slide up there for just a few more moments. And I can't tell you who wrote it. I can't find that part again, okay? But as long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. And how many times have I had to choose between my family and God and have chosen wrongly? And how many times have I made an idol out of my family? Jesus hits us pretty hard with some strange words. <laughs> like, like Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and his father, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Strong words to say, but what's he saying? God won't compete for first place in my allegiance. Everyone else starts number two. And whether it's overcompensating because of what you didn't receive as a kid and now you're just going to give your kid everything, or whether it's, it's the desire to help them become all of the dreams and hopes that you have for them, and whether it's wrapped up in your identity as being a successful parent, or whether it's deep love that smothers them and gives sacrificially to them, your kid is not safe in your arms, and your family is not safe under your leadership. Your family is at risk until you're willing to put God first. 
Because until you can do that, you are in grave danger of making them an idol which will wreck your life. Sometimes, God seems to be killing us when He's actually saving us. And some of you today, you need to take a walk up the mountain and find out what or who your Isaac is. Hear me clear. Some of you today need to take a walk up the mountain and find out what or who your Isaac is. Some of you today need to take a walk up the mountain and say to God, I see that you may be calling me to live my life without something that I never thought I could live without. But if I have you, it's okay. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. We live in a culture that worships family. And you are called to not bow down at that altar, but to make the one that you worship the keeper of your family, the Lord of your family. But that's different than worshiping your family. If I have to tame the idol of busyness, I think there's people in this room and you have to tame the idol of your family. May God give you help. Because if we don't tame our idols, they consume us and they wreck our lives. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, I know for some people in this room, family is so important. And yet I know our hearts, God, and we have a tendency to take a good thing and make it a supreme thing. And just on this topic, Lord, help us. Give us eyes to see. Help us discern who or what is our Isaac. And may we act accordingly. Inspire us. Give us strength and patience and discernment and enable us. In Christ's name, amen.